Welcome to BIV Today. We are the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And today on the show, we're talking tech. And we're going to look at the impact of digitalization on Canada's wealth management industry. That's going to be with Ian Russell. Later on, we'll speak to Charles Plant from the Impact Centre. He's going to measure Canada's technology startup scale-up potential. First, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the business headlines that are catching our eyeballs this morning, This, uh, I should say this entire day, of course. Haley, uh, what's going on with you? Yeah, we have a multi-billion dollar coffee deal to talk about, but first, a quick look at oil. West Texas Intermediate passed 70 US dollars per barrel, its highest point since November 2014, rent crude up above $75. I remember not even a year ago, we were on one of our shows talking about how there were concerns that the price of oil would never get this high, it wouldn't even pass $60, and here we are. Yeah, and I, the big question I have now is we saw a lot of action taken by the Bank of Canada because of that oil shock back in 2014. I, I wonder how swiftly they will be to you know ratchet rates up uh, going forward. Yeah, we'll watch that. Of course, this being spurred by geopolitical tensions, concerns around the U.S. imposing sanctions on Iran, on Iran. So that's going to be a story we follow this week. Also happening today, Monday, NAFTA talks resume in Washington today for another critical week of negotiations. I have to say, though, I think we've had a month, two months of critical weeks for these negotiations. Every week from here on out is going to be critical. On the table remain the most contentious issues from Canada's perspective they say they're still looking for a good win-win result, but are not prejudging the talk. Yeah, to me, it's just the big question marks hanging over all of this are elections in Mexico in the summer and then elections in the United States in the fall. So there's strong impetus to get this done, but I just wonder if there's too much foot dragging at this point for the deal to really be signed, sealed, and delivered in time for you know these political machinations that are going on right now. Yeah. Can they hammer out a deal that everyone wants in, I think the first deadline is June when the temporary exemption from steel and aluminum tariffs expires for Canada and Mexico. So we'll wait and see. We'll be talking about that more. A big news today, it's a multi-billion dollar coffee deal. You don't drink coffee, Tyler, so maybe this is more exciting for me than for you. Okay, fair enough, but uh, (laughs) I'm still all ears. It's an interesting one. Nestle is paying nearly 7.2 billion US dollars cash for the rights to sell Starbucks products around the world. It excludes ready-to-drink products and, of course, products sold in Starbucks stores, but it will include both food and drink products, and that itself is a business that generates around $2 billion in annual sales. It reinforces Nestle's standing as the world's largest coffee company. I think we're going to wait and see if we see Nespresso coffee pods with Starbucks coffee. I'm sure that's inevitable at this point. Probably so. Yeah. For us locally here, uh, we do have news that Aspect Biosystems is receiving a million dollars in funding from Genome BC. It's very interesting, Aspect Biosystems. They specialize in developing technology that would allow you to print off 3D printed human tissue. It's amazing. It is a little scary to a certain degree, <laughs> but uh, they would want to use this for, you know, say, drug testing that uh, pharmaceutical companies would be interested in doing this. So this $1 million, it's specifically from this fund that Genome BC has going towards commercialization of uh, really, you know, potentially awesome uh, technologies here. Uh, I spoke to the CEO, the, the former CEO, a few years ago, and he said, ultimately, the moonshot is for the company to be able to print off, say, complex human organs as Hmm. well. So I'm fascinated to see what's going to be coming up next, especially if they are able to ramp up the commercialization with this new $1 million in repayable funding that they're going to get here. Wow, it's very interesting. What a concept. 
I can't imagine where we're going to be in 10, 20 years from now. It, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, are, are you going to be the first to sign up for, say, you know, 3D printed organs? Nope. I'll be a late adopter of okay. that technology, although you never know what position you might find yourself in. Uh, that's very true. Yes. There you go. Well, speaking of commercialization, later on in the show, we'll talk about commercializing and scaling up technology companies. But first, we're going to have a look at how technology is transforming the wealth management space in just a moment. Our first guest today has some lessons for financial regulators. There's a technology whirlwind blowing through the wealth management business. And here in Canada, that will mean looking at our regulatory framework. In our conversation today with Ian Russell, president and CEO at the Investment Industry Association of Canada, we're going to discuss how digitalization is impacting the country's investment industry and wealth management industry. Ian, thanks as always for joining us on the program. Oh, you're welcome, Haley. My pleasure. I am curious, you issued recently a letter from the president, as you do every month, and you spoke a bit about the impact the transformation of technology is having on smaller retail investment firms. Can you talk about what it's meant for smaller players in our space? Sure. What it's meant is that they've had to step up uh, to compete with the larger firms. So they've essentially followed... uh, uh, in this uh, whirlwind, as you put it, in terms of um, building out uh, the products and the service uh, that are being demanded uh, by clients uh, across the board. And if you want to stay competitive in the marketplace for wealth management services, um, you need to, uh, first of all, focus on value and convenience, in uh, delivering those products and services. So you're relying very heavily on uh, technology to do that and digitalization, which is really, I guess, another word for saying uh, uh, computer access to uh, this information and these products and services. So it's uh, a real challenge for smaller firms because they have to uh, meet the same standard as the larger firms, and it's an expensive proposition. But I, I guess the good news here is that uh, you know we have over 90 uh, firms in across Canada delivering uh, uh, wealth management services to uh, retail clients, and uh, they're all uh, 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 meeting that uh, challenge pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, though, I mean, going forward, are they going to have to rely maybe the human aspect much more so when you go up against all these larger players that have access to all this technology? It could even be a question of more competitive pricing as well for the services that they're providing. Is that human element that these smaller firms are offering, is that going to be the key for a lot of these guys? No, Tyler, I, I don't think that's quite right. I, I think you've got you've you've hit the nail on the head when you talk about the human element because uh, when we look at the evolution of the wealth management services, the human element is critical. The advisor, the person that's acting as the financial quarterback for the client, uh, they want to speak to a human being and they want the uh, advisor to really understand the challenges the client's facing and the emotions the client's facing and to be really uh, helpful to uh, to the client. So the human element is important uh, whether you're a large firm um, or a small firm. 
Um, where the difference is noticeable most of all is with the large firms, everything is done in-house. Uh, you're building the technology, the platforms, um, all of it's really in-house, whereas when you're a much smaller firm, you're much more reliant on third-party uh, providers to provide everything from uh, the platform for the transactional custodial services, uh, the white labeling, um, interfacing platforms um, to the client. I, that what I mean by that is the uh, the websites that the that the uh, firms are using. Uh, that kind of technology is licensed or bought. Another example is um, online investing, uh, where uh, the large largest firms uh, look like they're developing their own robo-investing uh, platforms. But uh, for the smaller firms, uh, what we're seeing, and this is a, a good example of, of what's happening, is you'll get a Wealth Simple, for example, or Nest Wealth, which are two of the bigger platforms. Uh, there's some very good ones out west as well. And uh, what they do is they're either licensing their platform um, or um, you know, white labeling, licensing uh, the platform um, to uh, smaller firms, so that they can also offer a uh, uh, their advisors can offer a uh, robo uh, investing uh, platform for their clients. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this topic we're discussing today, to me, is that you have the challenge of firms trying to keep up with technological innovation, but they're doing so in a highly regulated industry. Yes. How rigid is that framework and how difficult is it for firms to really get innovative at the same time, ensure that they're completely compliant with all the rules in place? Yeah, well, you've just uh, hit on a very important point, Haley, and um, I think we're starting to see that problem emerge uh, more and more um, simply because you've got um, this uh, rapid pace of innovation and change and adaption of technology going at a feverish clip uh, in, the, uh, in the industry and firms having to rush to uh, keep up with it, and they're they're being pushed by their clients and uh, this competitive pressure in the industry. But regulators tend to be much more slow moving um, with a lot of inertia. Uh, and part of it, uh, to be fair to them, is um, I suppose a necessary inertia, um, which relates more to the fact that they want to make sure that if they are um, going to accommodate changes that they're done in a way that doesn't undermine the integrity um, of the system. But that said, we can start to see areas where uh, there's a need for the regulators to move quickly, and it seems to be um, taking them longer than it should. And I'll give you an example. Um, the online uh, robo-investing uh, to onboard clients onto that system, uh, we've had the uh, nine uh, independent standalone wealth platforms. I mentioned a couple of them a minute ago. Um, they have got a pretty uh, streamlined uh, process for onboarding clients. In other words, they can take on clients very quickly, fill out a questionnaire online, um, you can virtually open the account online and and be trading in probably 15 minutes or being able to uh, use their systems. And 
for um, our investment dealers offering, say, the same platform, um, and, and let's say you're offering it exclusively, you're offering simply the robo-investing platform, the onboarding process is much more complicated because it's the same onboarding process um, as you would use if you're opening a traditional brokerage account. So there's a need to uh, to move more quickly in making these changes. And in the paper, I cite a number of other areas where we can see uh, the regulators moving uh, far too slowly. I think initially, the regulators, when they saw fintech, looked at it as accommodating new players. So somebody that had a, a new mousetrap, like um, uh, robo-investing. But increasingly, um, I think the bigger challenge is just the existing business uh, changing so quickly, uh, integrating, uh, the use of digital technology, uh, a big challenging area, Haley, is um, the use of client data, um, combining all, compiling all this data, aggregating it, and then turning the data into useful information for the client and for the advisor. So it raises issues uh, around cybersecurity, the protection of that data, and you can see uh, over time how this is not just going to be the data that advisors have when they have clients with a number of different accounts within the firm. Um, it's going to you're going to have third-party aggregators that are going to be out, and this is already happening in the U.S. that are scraping data from credit cards, bank accounts. Uh, brokerage accounts across a series of firms at the request of the client, so um, it went to third-party providers. So all of this raises issues of uh, security and uh, the protection of the confidentiality of uh, data, transactional data of clients. So this is increasingly going to be an issue. So regulators are going to have to uh, adapt um, uh, probably at a more quick Quick, quicker pace than they have shown in the past, I think. But in Canada, we, we do have far more rigid privacy regulations than we would find in the United States. Uh, could you think of what kind of information, useful information, a lot of the Canadian um, providers would want to use this data for? Um, well, yeah, well, that's not so difficult. I mean, what they want the data for is for financial planning purposes to help clients get an understanding or a pattern of their spending behavior, their savings behavior, and then use that historic data um, to sort of map a plan for them going forward, uh, a plan both to save more, in other words, where are they spending the money, what kind of items are they spending it on, um, where, uh, how are they saving money, what kinds of accounts, what kinds of accumulated savings, and then making adjustments to sort of um, help drive uh, better savings for clients. So the use of the data is uh, really important. I, I think the challenge for Canadians in privacy laws, and Tyler, you make a really good point. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on uh, on privacy, but we still haven't sort of gotten to where um, the Europeans are, for example, where it's very clear under EU law that uh, the information uh, belongs to the client. So uh, you're suddenly now seeing a framework of laws that 
not only um, have made decisions on ownership, that it's the ownership of the data is the client's, but transparency so the client knows where the data is and has to be informed as to its usage by the various users. And that's where you get into sort of uh, a, a picture for the client of saying, well, I've, I've got information stored with various institutions and credit card companies. And that gets into the issue where you sit down with your advisor and you want to consolidate it. And uh, does the client have the authority over all of that data and the information needed to be able to uh, draw that information together? And um, I'm not even sure in the Canadian marketplace whether there are these third-party data aggregators that stand up and say, you know what, I've got the systems to be able to uh, scrape data or gather data from a multitude of institutions uh, and provide it to you or to your advisor um, and under your instructions. I don't think Canadian laws have made that even clear yet, but that's where we're headed. And so again, it's a matter of I think the regulators um, uh, somehow getting together with um, uh, governments on privacy, and I think Canada's got a number of steps to go. I think we're behind uh, the EU, and I'm not exactly sure where the privacy are, laws are in the U.S., but I think, again, they're, they're much closer to where they, they are in the, uh, the EU because this problem of data aggregation and the challenges for the security of the uh, information um, are, are now suddenly big issues in the U.S., but not yet here in Canada, but it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. We'll have to have you back when it does happen to walk us through what all the implications are. But for now, as always, really appreciate you coming on the program, Ian. Well, it's my pleasure, Haley. I just uh, really enjoy it. It's, uh, you run a great show. Thank you very much. We enjoy having you. That's Ian Russell, President and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. Yeah. And up next, Charles Plant. He's the director of the Impact Centre at the University of Toronto. He's going to be joining us right after this. Per capita, BC has the most technology startups in Canada, but falls behind Ontario when it comes to scaling them. Canada, meanwhile, scales companies better than Europe, but is worse off than the United States. Measuring Canada's scale-up potential, a framework for a national high-tech funnel, is a recent report from the University of Toronto's Impact Centre. It assesses the strengths and weaknesses of the country's high-tech industry, which is important to understand as the federal government prepares to pour, I don't know, $950 million into superclusters intended to develop global market leaders. Joining us on the show today is Charles Plant, the author of the report and the director of the Impact Center, here to walk us through it all. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. When we look at, say, Canada as a high-tech funnel, how healthy, how effective is that funnel overall? Well, you know, I think we... we we tell ourselves a great story about how well we're doing, but when it comes down to it, um, we're really being outshone by all sorts of different places in the States. And I noticed you said in the introduction that BC was leading on a per capita basis. You know, when I did the research, I was surprised by that because in Ontario here, we keep hearing that we're leading the, uh, the country and, and frankly, we keep comparing ourselves to Silicon Valley, but I think, uh, there isn't really a, a way for people to examine the details behind this. So we have lots of misconceptions about what's going on. 
You know, I, I've been writing a lot about this lately, uh, Charles. I look at a lot of startups that are undergoing a lot of strain here in British Columbia. You think of Build Direct, it just got out of creditor protection. Uh, we also see that maybe there's a bit of a ceiling when it comes to scaling up. I think a Vigilon is one instance of it had a $1 billion uh, buyout from uh, Motorola took it over. But you wonder, are we capable here in British Columbia of really scaling up and have these large scale anchor companies? What is kind of the issue going on right now with British Columbia with regards to just our ability to scale up here? Well, it's funny. I've just completed the research for another report that will come out uh, sometime in May, and it, it goes into depth at some of these issues. If you look at the numbers in the report you're looking at, it shows that we're, we're doing better at starting companies than we are at expanding them to world-class scale. And we've got lots of companies below 10 million, but our percentage above is pretty, pretty weak. And there is a fundamental reason for that. And that's uh, we aren't growing companies fast enough. And the companies that get investment that are able to grow to world-class scale get that investment because they're growing rapidly. And so what happens is we finance companies later, less often, and in lower dollar amounts. And what happens over time is, as a result, they grow more slowly. And when they're growing more slowly, they just don't attract the late-stage capital that uh, the companies in the United States can. So they end up getting sold, and we don't create the large companies. So is that something about Canadian culture to a certain degree? I know everybody's sick of hearing that comment about maybe Canadians being more risk-averse, but I wonder how much that comes into it versus just, say, the economics of this country. Well, I think it's a bit of all sorts of different things. There's, there's no one fundamental reason, and I hope it's certainly not the, the nature of our, our willingness to take risks, because then we'll forever have a problem. There are lots of anecdotal things that say that that's not the case. You've got a good suite as a successful company that shows that's not it. But I, I think the problem comes to the way our funders are funded and what they have to invest in as a result. We have money in venture capital, but because it's uh, in lower dollar volume in any one firm, it means they have to spread their money to the same number of companies, which means it gets uh, they put less in each company. And because they put less in, the company can't grow as much. So we've got a structural problem that, that is, you know, a self-perpetuating one because they don't uh, grow fast enough that VCs don't get the returns they need to get in order to build the large funds so that they keep investing in small amounts and we keep having small companies. Hmm. Yeah, that growth story is important. And in the report, it notes that in addition to say that the challenge of being risk adverse, some challenges we have here in Canada, one of the challenges highlighted is the in the area of making companies financially attractive to investors. Is that strictly on growth, they need to be growing more quickly to attract that? Or are there some other areas that maybe could help attract more investment? Well, they have to be in large markets and the markets have to have large potential. And we talked a few months ago about that and the fact that we don't tend to enter markets that are as large as some of the more successful companies. So that's a fundamental. But the, 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 the second thing is you've got to have a formula for success and, and what pays in terms of uh, funding companies is growth. You can look at Real Matters and Shopify as two perfect examples to compare in that they were both started the same year. And Real Matters was started and didn't attract the same amount of capital early on. They grew more slowly. They weren't as far advanced when they uh, went public as Shopify. So they were about two thirds of the size of Shopify. 
But the big factor was that uh, Shopify was growing at 90% a year when they went public and Real Matters was growing at something in the 23, 28% a year. When Shopify went public, they went public at a valuation that was 20 times their revenue and Real Matters was three times revenue. I know I'm giving a lot of numbers here, but what it means is that the markets value growth more highly than they they value anything else. It doesn't matter if you're making money or what size market you're in. If you're able to prove that to rapid astronomical growth, then you'll get the returns uh, and you'll get people wanting to invest. Hmm. Well, let me throw this out to you. Maybe I kind of like to play in hypotheticals every once in a while, but we have the big Amazon HQ2 question going around. Uh, Toronto is still in the running, one of the top 20 cities that are left here. Amazon just last week announced that they're going to add 3,000 jobs to its Vancouver presence here. With a big giant like that coming into any given city, is there potential for that to attract, say, a lot more of those higher level sorts of talents, the, the people that would be able to stick around, influence the way that scale-ups could go? They wouldn't necessarily be sticking around Amazon for you know 10 years, but they could jump off into their own sorts of startups. I'm just wondering if the presence of a giant like this could really boost the whole startup culture within a city. Well, we need a giant. Absolutely. Each of our cities, Toronto and Vancouver, needs one or two giants, in fact, in order to be successful, because they have a tremendous effect on the uh, on the local scene. Uh, people come into them, they get experience, they uh, they grow up, and then they farm out and try their own thing because of what they've learned. The problem when an Amazon comes in is that the senior marketing experience and the the senior technical people aren't there. They're still back in in Seattle, so. You, you don't inculcate the type of, of training or the type of knowledge that's necessary in order to be successful at spin-outs. So I'm worried if Amazon comes into Toronto because they'll suck the market dry of talent in order to fill their, their needs. They've, they've had an amazing effect of companies like Amazon in Israel where they're willing to pay anything to get senior talent because they're, they're comparing their pay levels to those in the United States. So they suck the system dry of the best talent and they don't give back because the problems that they're facing are different than the nature of the problems that would be faced by a startup. It's a complex answer, but uh, I'm not looking forward to winning if we do. Well, you know, it was interesting because when I spoke to a lot of people in the tech sector after Vancouver was knocked out of the running for HQ2, there's actually kind of a sense of relief going on because I think a lot of people are worried uh, about what it would mean for it. But now with the the addition of 3,000 more jobs coming to the city, a lot of people are raising concerns about maybe just what that could do for our already very tight housing market, which I'm sure you guys can appreciate over in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think 3,000 would be perfect. I, I think yeah. when, when Vancouver got 3,000 people for Amazon, oh, that's perfect. That's all we need. We don't have 50,000. Just a nice bit of add to the employment level and really wouldn't upset the uh, local economy all that much if it helped. But um, so I'm a little envious and hoping that uh, they don't <laughs> shove the 50,000 into Toronto. Well, Haley, we're on the right track then at, at this point here in yep. Vancouver, right? Yeah, we'll see. But, you know, speaking of Amazon, we tend to think of sort of the, the western coast of the U.S. as the spot for tech. Seattle, obviously, but I think above all else, Silicon Valley and California. But what really grabbed my attention in your report, Charles, is Massachusetts actually has the best track record for company creation and scaling per capita, I would not have thought of Massachusetts as a destination for high tech, but what's going on there and what lessons can we maybe learn from that jurisdiction? Well, that, that was interesting because I was surprised by it too. Uh, 
I did work in Massachusetts. In fact, I moved the head off. I ran a software company for many years, and I moved the head office to Boston at one point in time because we needed to Americanize the company. But And I thought Boston was big then, and I thought it had sort of faded as Silicon Valley had come up. So to see that how well Boston and Massachusetts were doing was a real surprise. And they've got something going there that people, I, I don't think, have an appreciation for. I work now in San Francisco on a regular basis, and, and it's a different type of market entirely. Um, I think that as Canadians, we shouldn't be trying to emulate what's going on in San Francisco. I think that's a special case. But what we can do is emulate what's going on in Boston and learn, even emulate places like Pittsburgh. And I was surprised that Ontario doesn't do as well as Pennsylvania or Illinois or or Georgia in their ability to start and grow companies. So we've got a lot to learn from a lot of people that that is that we don't have to learn from Silicon Valley because they're so special. Mm-hmm. When you look at, say, a list of priorities for provincial or federal governments, what do you think should be at the top in terms of, first of all, what's within their, their scope to actually influence, and second of all, what they should focus on above all else if trying to support more startup companies make their way toward becoming global players? I think Ontario, as a good example, has done a lot to su- support the early stage, the creation of more and more companies. Over the last 10 years, they've done a, a really good job at promoting entrepreneurship and technology entrepreneurship. But there, there's one factor that, um, or maybe one or two factors that are being missed. First of all, I don't think we should be focusing on the, the software sector. I don't think it's a game we can win at. And, and we should be looking at healthcare and clean tech as things that the government can support where we can grow an innovation economy, but which is also good for Canadians. And then aligned with that is using the government's enormous purchasing power to actually help and bring companies through by bringing increasing demand for what they're producing. So if government works on those two things. And then thirdly, Regulation's a great way. Clean tech regulations, health regulations is a way of getting things moving. As an example, the music industry in Canada didn't exist uh, in the uh, 60s. And it was created with one simple act of parliament that said, if you've got a Canadian radio station, you've got to play Canadian content a certain percentage of the time. Mm -hmm. So for a dollar, basically the cost of printing out an act that said you've got to produce this content, we created a huge music industry and we've got Drake and Celine Dion and even Nickelback and Justin Bieber to, uh, to see from that result. So a number of different ways, but not what the government's currently doing. Hmm. Interesting point. Charles, as always, we really appreciate you coming on the show and we look forward to having you back for the next report that you mentioned. Thanks. That's Charles Plant, director of the Impact Center at the University of Toronto. You've been listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver. And please subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us five stars. It'll help other people find us on the internet. And uh, go to BIV.com. You can find my stories and Haley's stories and more. For now, thank you for joining us. 